I'm going to make an error that I have made before. I'll probably make again. My wife said, this seems like a short sermon, so I'm going to add some stuff here at the beginning. That's the error. That's it. Uh, first of all, let me say this. Uh, last week we sang that song, Ah, Holy Lord Jesus. And I was focusing on the fact that I didn't know the song and struggling through getting the notes, you know, at least like 30% of them right. And the message of that song did not, did not strike me. I didn't get that. Maybe you're saying, hey, me too. Um, what a shame. What a shame that I've missed. Today, I was brought to tears from the words of that song. Um, and what a shame that I missed the opportunity to worship through in, in that way last week. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is because I want to do better. I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to worship through the wonderful hymns that we sing because I'm struggling with I don't know this song. I don't feel like, even though I know how our musicians are doing this, and when we come to a brand new song, we have heard it 10 times. <laughs> we, we just may not have consciously registered, but we've heard it. Uh, but what we're doing is we're going to take the opportunity to, uh, I, I don't know what to call it other than practice. We're going we're gonna to learn some songs at, from our hymnal so that we can get more from them and we can worship better. Now, we're going to do that uh, beginning the first Wednesday evening in next month. What is that, April? Yeah, April. First Wednesday evening. And, and let me tell you this. Some of you are, are thinking right now, that sounds like choir practice. I don't want to be in the choir. I, I'm, I'm not going to be. Some of you are thinking, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, even with the instructions. That's not really what this is for. I, I mean, yeah, maybe we'll hit a few more right notes than wrong notes. But this is, we're not cutting an album, folks. We're not, we're not doing that. And we're not going on the road this is purely for us as God's people to improve our worship, to, to have a better offering to him and that our hearts might be changed uh, through this. So I just wanted to encourage you uh, that, that uh, we're singing some really good songs. Not, not only that one that I mentioned, but we're singing some really good music that we don't know very well. And this is going to be a great help to us. And I, I hope that you will make a point of uh, you know, making that priority, it's a good thing. The other thing that I want to do, just kind of, I wanted to tell you where we're at in the, today's message. I, I asked my wife today on the way, uh, I read the sermon to her last night, and then she said, you want me to read it on the way to church this morning, which is what we typically do, and she did. I said, yeah, I want you to read it, and then tell me that it's garbage. And, uh, yeah, and she's like, what are you telling people that for? Uh, and she read it. She said, you think it's garbage? And, and I'm, so I've been struggling with what, what I'm feeling about this sermon. I, I, it's, it's not adequate. It's not, it's not enough. But here's what I've come to. I, I've titled the sermon, Christ Committed No Sin. This is about the pure, holy character of Jesus Christ. I don't, I, I am incapable 
of communicating fully to say, yep, that, that did it. So we're going we're gonna to talk about this today. And in the end, it's going to be inadequate to really communicate the purity of our Savior. We're going to talk about the purity of our Savior in contrast with the sinfulness of mankind. And if we want to, and we really should personalize that and say our own sinfulness. And that's, so that's where we're at today. I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read verses 21 through 25. If you would please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and lived to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls God as I've confessed to these people and I confess to you what you already know I am inadequate for this subject we are inadequate as humans to, to comprehend but God we pray today that through your word and the work of your spirit that you would allow us to apprehend that you would allow us to take hold and, and find a handle to grab on to concerning the holiness of Christ. God, we pray that you would bless your word to your people for our sanctification. And that you would bless the word for the saving of lost souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been working our way through 1 Peter, verse by verse, and most recently we have been in this section. It begins here in chapter 2, and it continues into chapter 3, and this section deals with submission. And we're commanded in Scripture plainly, as we have been seeing, that we are, as Christians, to submit to the authorities over us. And we're not done with this submission topic uh, but, but we are commanded clearly that we are to submit to the authorities over us as long as we can submit to them and obey God's commands. And we have seen that submission to authority, submission to human authority ends when we cannot obey both God and men. Then we must obey God. And we've seen application of these submission principles, first in governing authorities, and then uh, last week in the slave 
master circumstance that has application for us in our employee-employer relationships and maybe in other ways. We've also noted that in our current circumstance, in the year 2023, in the United States of America, in the state of Texas, we have many freedoms, and we have much latitude that we may enjoy as we submit to authorities. For instance, we can lawfully express and even officially register our disagreement with our government, with those who govern us. We can, we can have a difference of opinion and we can let that be known. And not only is that okay for a Christian to do as a citizen of this country, there are times when it is necessary for us to do this. Another example of freedoms that we enjoy uh, is in our slave or in our employee roles. We have freedom to change our circumstance. We can switch jobs. We can leave one employer for another. We can even go into business for ourselves. And if you've done that, you've learned that not having a boss means almost everybody's your boss. You have many bosses. And that's what it is to not have a boss, is everybody's the boss. But we have freedoms to affect our situation in these ways. All the while obeying the biblical command to submit to authority. And today we move forward in the text and, and we come to this next section, verses 21 through 25 that we've just read. And, and with this, I'm, I'm treating this differently. I, I think there are some very important things for us here. I know there are. And, and I want us to, to just give a trajectory of where we're going. I, I want to make some general observations about this text. I want to warn us of some errors that people fall into. And, and if we just give a careless reading of the text, we might fall into those errors. So we want to be careful to avoid these errors. Then I'd like to point us to what I believe to be the best part, the most important thing in these verses, namely to point us to the sin slaying work of Christ. The sin slaying work of Christ. And if, if I were going to, take this sermon and the next one and make them a, 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 a series together, that would be what I would call the sin-slaying work of Christ. And, and we'll see two main divisions laid out here for us very plainly in the text. And the first we'll take on today, and the next one we will tackle next time. So first, some general observations. General observations. This text, uh, maybe it's familiar to you, this text is the basis for a book that was written and we see in verse 21 that we're to follow in his steps this this is the basis for a book that was written in 1896 called in his steps and maybe you're familiar with this book if you've never heard the title of the book in his steps i'm willing to bet you've heard the subtitle what would jesus do we're familiar with that. What would Jesus do? This has become a very common phrase and even a mantra of sorts among Christians. 
And if I'm just being honest, any religious fad is off-putting to me, especially if it's manifested in on t-shirts and bracelets and bumper stickers. That's kind of off-putting to me. But I, I don't think that's because of the, 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 it's certainly not because of the text of scripture that it's taken from. And I don't think it's so much because of the movement uh, as it is the cultish following. Uh, it's not really the substance of the thing that bothers me. If we just take the question at face value, what would Jesus do? Then the question seems innocent enough and perhaps even helpful somewhat as we live our lives. What would Jesus do? I, I think at times that could be a helpful question. But, but I don't think as I read this passage, as I read this in its context, I don't think that question gets to the point of the text. What would Jesus do? I think that misses the point of the text. These verses don't lead us to ask, what would Jesus do? These verses lead us to see, what has Jesus done? What has, what has he done? And, and then further, if we look at the book and the movement that came from it, we see that there was a focus on social change. What would Jesus do? Led people, well, first of all, if we're going to ask the question, what would Jesus do? Where do we get the answer? It better come from Scripture. It better not come from me or from you or from what we think. I, the, the most ignorant conversation I've ever heard in my life. I was at a place where I was working and a whole bunch of people were standing around talking about what Jesus would say and what Jesus thinks about a certain situation. And I've told some of you about this just recently. And it was, it was the most ignorant conversation I've heard because not one of them had read the scripture to, to know what Jesus thinks and what Jesus did. And that's the only way that we can, can even begin to say, what would Jesus do is to go to the scripture and see what has he done and how has he behaved and how has he acted. And then we might know this movement though that came from the book asked the question, what would Jesus do? And the focus was on social change. The focus was on social change. And, and I, I've got to say, social change is often a good thing. At least sometimes, social change is very good. But social change, and hear me say this because this is very unpopular, and what is very popular in our day and in our world is the opposite of what I'm going to say here today. Social change is not the focus of the Bible. It is not to be the emphasis of the church, though we so often see that it is. Social change was not a concern for Jesus Christ, nor for the apostles. Maybe you're arguing with that. I challenge you to go to scripture. So I feel confident in saying this, that social change is not the takeaway from this text of Scripture in 1 Peter. Just, just to be clear, in case I haven't been clear, what I'm saying is Jesus did not come to save society. And the apostles never preached against societal injustices. Now, last week we looked at slavery and we saw very clearly that we can go to scripture and we can see that slavery is not a Christian 
thing, that slavery is a sinful act. But the apostles didn't preach against it. They didn't write against it, as it were. Jesus and the apostles in the scripture show us how to live with the reality of social injustices. Not how to change the world, but how to live in the world with the reality of social injustices. But Jesus doesn't save societies. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves individuals who are chosen and who are called effectually. Jesus saves individuals who place faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin. These are the ones for whom Jesus died. So one error that we want to avoid as we see this text and all that's been said about it over the last hundred or so years, we want to avoid thinking that this text is pointing us to social change. Another error that some, some believe, and, and we see it in the very last phrase of verse 24 when taken out of context. By his wounds, or, or I grew up with the King James, by his stripes, we are healed. And we see that here, and we see it in Isaiah 53 that was read earlier in our hearing. By his stripes, we are healed. I remember a lady coming into my office in Hempstead, Texas, claiming that this text and the Isaiah 53 text that Peter quotes here is grounds for us claiming healing from every physical ailment. Healed was taken by her and by those who fall into this error to mean physical healing. But isn't it clear in, in both these texts here and in Isaiah that what is in view is the suffering of Jesus Christ for sinners. The wounds and the stripes which he endured while bearing our sin. This is not speaking of Christ suffering for our sniffles or for our fever or for our high blood pressure or even for our cancer. Christ's suffering was for the healing of our sin sickness. For the forgiveness of sin, he died. What is in view here is the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. By his stripes, we are healed. This verse points us to Calvary. It points us to the suffering Savior who lived and died that we might be saved. So we don't think of this text as a social change text. And we don't think of this text as dealing with physical sickness or physical healing. This is clearly dealing with Christ's work as our Savior. So that's why I labeled this the sin-slaying work of Christ. The sin-slaying work of Christ. The eradication of sin. And the eradication of the results of sin. This is the purpose for which Jesus came. Many places 
tell us this, Galatians 4 came to my mind, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that, which is a statement of purpose, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Jesus came to redeem sinful men under the law. And this is the gospel. This is the good news of the Bible. Jesus came to save sinners. Now we do realize that this text is in a larger teaching concerning submission. And we know that these verses, even as they speak to the sin-slaying work of Christ, these verses are far from all the biblical information about the atoning life and death of Jesus. Much more could be said. But here we find two key things in this text which are vital for us to know. And we see these two things clearly laid out in the text. Verse 22 he committed no sin. That's where I take the title of the sermon today. He committed no sin. And then verse 24, what we'll consider next time, he bore our sin on the cross. And so I see some of you just ready to, to this, is, this is it, right? This is the main thing. He committed no sin and he bore our sin on the cross. We consider today, verse 22, he committed no sin. And when we think about Jesus being the one sufficient offering for the sins of all who would believe on him, it is important that we understand that he had no sin of his own. See, sin is the problem. If I mentioned earlier, Sniffles, fevers, high blood pressure, cancer. I mean, we think those things are problems, but but the real problem, our, our real problem is sin. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what condemns us to eternal hell. And, and as I'm saying this, sin, I, I want you to note that I'm not saying sins. I'm going to take just a minute to flesh this out uh, and to differentiate between sins and sin. We can't deny that sins are a problem. But the point that I want to make here is that sin is the problem. The distinction is simple. Sins are the many things that a person may do which transgress the law of God. Our catechism says sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So there are sins that we can commit. Uh, there are sins that we, that we commit by omitting doing the right that God has commanded. Sins, lying, stealing, murdering, dishonoring parents, these are sins and they are problematic, but they are not the problem. They are results of the problem. These sins flow from sin. And what I mean by that is a sinful nature, a corrupted nature. Our sinful actions flow from our sin nature. 
Now, some of you know me and you know I have an illustration. Barking does not make my pet a dog. Barking doesn't make my pet a dog. My pet is a dog by nature and barking is the natural thing that flows from his being doggy by nature. What the nature is, things flow from that. Our sin nature naturally, sometimes by conscious effort, but sometimes completely unconsciously, our sin nature produces sins. And sins are a problem, but try cleaning up sins without taking care of the nature. <laughs> you're you're going to be busy <laughs> and you're going to lose that battle. Sin nature is the problem. In, in the same way that I compared my dog, all of humanity coming through the lineage of Adam has inherited a sin nature. Then sins are the natural thing that flows from our sin nature. And further, and we need to get this, we all, we all think, yes, we deserve hell because of the sins that we commit. And I'd like to correct that. No, we deserve hell because of the sin nature and the guilt that we inherit from Adam. And then when we commit sins, we just double down on that. We just amen that condemnation every time we commit a sin. What fits us for eternal hell, for the just wrath of God, is the sin, the corrupt nature that we got from Adam. Our sins don't send us to hell. Our sins are evidence that we have the nature of hell. Scripture speaks of this inherited sin nature. And, and I want to read from Romans chapter 5. And you don't have to turn there because I'm going to skip around a lot. I, I'm going to read. This is intermingled with some things about the nature from Adam and the nature from Christ. And I'm just going to read these parts that deal with, with the sin nature of man. The sin nature that was passed from Adam. Uh, and here in this text, Adam is referred to as one man or the one. And, and listen to these. And these will be familiar to most of you. Just as through one man, meaning Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin by the transgression of the one, many died. See, we are spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. The judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The judgment of God the condemnation for sin is from Adam's sin, the transgression of the one. Verse 18 says, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's our nature. So all of us who came from Adam were made sinners by Adam's sin. That is to say we inherit a sin corrupted nature and we are guilty and deserving of hell. And that is before we ever commit a single sin. 
We deserve hell as the punishment for Adam's sin. And because of that sin nature, we are, or because of Adam's sin, we are in our nature wholly corrupted. Wholly, completely corrupted. Not, maybe not as sinful as we could be, but there is no part of your human nature that is not corrupted by Adam's sin. So as we come to these verses about Jesus Christ's sin-slaying work, we are careful to say that if Jesus had been born of Adam, had Jesus been born, as, as our confession says, by ordinary generation, if Jesus was born in the same way that every one of us and every other person born was, then he would have inherited the guilt and corruption of sin from Adam. And then he would not be fit to redeem sinners because he would be a slave to sin as we are. Had Jesus been born of Adam, he would have the same problem that we did. But Jesus, praise be to God, was not born of Adam. Jesus was virgin born. That is so important. Because he then did not have a corrupt sin nature. He did not then commit sinful acts and this uniquely qualifies Jesus and Jesus alone the God man to be the redeemer and the savior of sinners the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote on the sinless perfection of Jesus not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And the richer blood that he speaks of here is the sinless blood of Jesus. Jesus committed no sin. Our text begins this way in verse 22. And then this truth of the sinlessness of Christ is repeated in a couple of ways to make sure that we understand <laughs> that we understand the sinlessness of Christ. He committed no sin. That's the first statement. It's just a general statement about the sinlessness of the Savior. But then we're going to see things that are very common to human beings, very common to mankind. It says, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That's my New American Standard. I remember the King James says no guile was found in his mouth. We don't use that word guile very often in our day. But the word means trickery, cunning, or duplicity. No deceit, no trickery, no cunning, no duplicity was found in Jesus' mouth. Now we, we know about little white lies. Little white lies. They're, they're little, first of all. And they're white, meaning that they're, they're harmless. And we speak in sometimes little white lies and sometimes in bigger lies. All persons have told a lie, but not Jesus. No outright lies. 
No statement intended to deceive. No trickery. No deceit. No guile was found in his mouth. And verse 23, while being reviled, <coughs> he did not revile in return. Reviling is to detest. It's disgust. <coughs> when we are detested, when we are insulted, when we are marginalized, when we are accused, our first reaction is to return evil for evil. I can give as good as I get. But Jesus, when reviled, did not revile in return. Verse 23 continues, while suffering, he uttered no threats. This is another reaction common to sinful men and women. When we're mistreated or when we perceive that we have been mistreated, how easy is it to say threatening and violent things against those who are bringing this suffering upon us? But Jesus suffered and he had done nothing to deserve this suffering that was brought upon him by the Jews at the hands of the Romans. But he never, in all of this, he never sinned by uttering threats. And we note here that these things, this deceit and reviling and uttering threats, these things are listed here as sinful behaviors. 1 Corinthians 6 it says this, no thief, nor greedy, nor drunkard, nor reviler, nor swindler will enter the kingdom of God. These things are serious. These things are serious, sinful behaviors. And then also in 1 Corinthians, we're told there as Christians not to associate with those who practice these things. Don't associate. So Christians, just as Jesus, our Savior, did not commit these sins, we ought to put them away. We ought to turn from these sins, repent from this sinful behavior. But you may ask, well, preacher, you just said these things come to us so quickly. These things are like second nature. How then are we to overcome? How can we overcome these things? How are we to rise above these sins? We do so by following the example that we're given here of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 ends with this, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly, righteously. Jesus didn't resist sin by entrusting himself to those who were bringing suffering upon him. Sometimes we think that's, oh, what you're asking me to do is put my hand, put my life in the hands of the enemy. No, that's not what Jesus did. He didn't place his life in the hands of the enemy. He didn't even entrust himself to the disciples who, by the way, had abandoned, had, had all gone away. He, he didn't entrust himself and place his life in the hands of his brothers and his sisters and his mother Mary. He entrusted himself, it says here, to him who judges righteously. He entrusted himself to his heavenly father, the righteous judge. 
And we too have this have this eternal perspective, Christians, that must be ours. We must have this eternal perspective when our suffering is most intense. When we are suffering for no wrong done, but when we are suffering even for doing right, first we remember, as we heard from Hebrews earlier, that our suffering has not risen to the level of injustice that was brought upon Jesus, our example. And then we remember what he did and we entrust ourselves, not to our enemy, not to our friends, not to our family, but to our heavenly father. We entrust ourselves to him. My life, heavenly father, is in your hands. We entrust our health and our well-being to God. We entrust our mistreatment and the injustice that, that may be brought upon us. We, uh, we entrust that to God. When, when you can't see righteousness, when you can't see right anywhere, when all seems hopeless, entrust yourself to your heavenly Father. What a, what a precious gift this is. First, that we can call him our Father and our Father he truly is. And then that we are able to rest. Even in the most difficult circumstances, we are able to rest in him. Sufferings, persecutions, whatever it is that we can rest in him, entrusting ourselves to him, relying on his faithfulness, relying on his righteousness, his grace and mercy and his goodness. What a blessing this is. Christians, this is what we are to do. Sinner, you who are here without Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't have this place of refuge. You don't have this rest. You don't have the forgiveness of sin through a sinless, perfect redeemer. The command of scripture and the only hope for your soul is that you repent of your sin, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you run to him, that you rest in him and and, and Satan and so and the world and, and perhaps so much in your mind will say that's the wrong thing to do, but it's the only way of salvation. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sinner, the command of Scripture is to call for you today that you come to Him by faith, believing in all that Jesus did in His life and in His death, and believing, as we pointed out today, that Christ committed no sin and thus was fit to be our Savior. Jesus, our Savior, committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteousness. Next time we will explore the statement, Christ bore our sin. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these things to our heart. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin. We pray that you would save sinners, calling them effectually to Christ, granting to them the grace of repentance and faith, those twin graces. God, we pray that you would save sinners. As we come to the table, we thank you that the table points us to our sinless Savior. Amen.